My name is Henry Michael, um, pastor over students and families, and uh, welcome to the Faith Milestone Celebration. It's a great weekend. Um, it's always fun seeing a bunch of little kids be uh, little kids on stage, so that's a lot of fun. Um, we are jumping in on this week, uh, back into our series. The series is called The First Page, and the, fir- the point of the series um, is that the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, has a lot to say about who God is, and it helps us read the rest of our Bibles in light of who God is, and that's a really important thing to do. Uh, we can't read our Bibles in isolation. We can't read it with our own uh, ideas of what the Bible is or should be. It's defined by God, and it's defined by God in a number of ways. God is the main subject. He's in there 35 times. He's a creator, he's a sustainer, and he shares some of his qualities with us, but some of the qualities that God has are completely unique to him. And through this series, we've seen that he is indefinite concerning time. That's something we can't even wrap our minds around. The fact that he has no beginning, he has no end. He's indefinite regarding time. We see that uh, he's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere, all at once. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, we had a picture of the solar system, and God doesn't just go like zip back and forth to us, to the, you know, the moon and to Saturn and then back to someone over there. He is present everywhere. We do not share in that quality. We also see that he's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He's able to create, he's able to sustain, and he has endless energy to do all of those things. And today we're going to see that God is limitless, but we also see that we are not limitless, and that's a good thing. We see that in terms of how we were created. We were created by God to have relationship with him, to have relationship to one another, and we have a job to do on earth. Now, most of us have given up the idea of being all-powerful. We've also given up the idea that we can be everywhere at once. We've even given up the power or the, the idea that we can be timeless. I recognized it this last year when I blew out my knee in wrestling practice with a bunch of high schoolers. And my wonderful, wise boss made sure to remind me that I can't, he can't fix stupid because <laughs> I am not timeless. So many of us, though, have grown up in a culture that tells us that if you work hard enough, if you believe hard enough, if you manifest it correctly, that you can have anything, that anything is possible, that there are no limits, no dream is out of reach. And it's not just something that we tell our kids, it's something that we've internalized since we were younger. We see it in the business world. We want to make all the money. We want the power. Same in politics. We want to make life-changing and world-changing decisions and be a part of that. We want to solve the problems and have power. In our household, we want our kids to be successful. We want them to follow Jesus. We want our households to be peaceful. We want to take awesome vacations together. We want, in our rest and play, we want endless time, limitless time for our play and for our hobbies. But all of that is impossible. My son, Hank, he's our uh, middle son, he used to say, before he could say his L's, he would say, don't test my yimits. And uh, (laughs) he's copying his parents. Because anytime we come against our limits, usually something ugly comes out. When uh, our kids are, are pushing our limits, we lash out at our kids. 
When our kids are in their limits, maybe they're tired or they're frustrated with each other, they lash out at us or at one another. At our limits at work, we run into walls, into failure, and the list goes on. You can only lose so much weight. You can only make so much money. You can only go on so many fun vacations and and have a work-life balance. And when we try to push it up against our limits, we get exhausted. It's very tiring. And the excuse that we always get, whenever we hit our limits, we say, hey, listen, I'm only human. I'm just a person. As if it's some sort of a scapegoat. As if we're sorry for having such things as limits. Now, I hate limits more than most people. And you can ask my wife. It is very true. But I learned a very valuable lesson recently from an unlikely source, and that was a strawberry. Now, my uh, family... We went strawberry picking. This is Mac, our youngest. Um, and we went strawberry picking with another family. Now, my kids love strawberry picking, apple picking, picking out pumpkins, and so does my, my wife. It's an activity for the kids. I, on the other hand, hate it. I think it is pointless, or I used to think it was pointless. And I made sure everyone knew it, because um, <laughs> it's fun to do that, right? And it's fun to listen to. Um, I, I would tell my, parent, my wife, I would tell the family that we were with, What's the point? The store has nice little packages full of fruit that we can just go buy, and it's actually cheaper than picking them at the patch. If you go pick up apples, a bag costs like $45. It's an exaggeration, but not much of one. (laughs) Now, I was just giving my worldview of picking fruit to my family and this poor other family, and... um, I was doing this until I picked up one of these strawberries and I ate one. I soon found myself covered in strawberry juice because I ate probably 50 strawberries. Because I realized they were delicious. They were unbelievable. They were different from any strawberry I think I've had in probably the past 15, 20 years. And this is actually something uh, that all of us have probably come up against when, when tasting fresh fruit, and most of you are probably a little bit more open to it than I was. There's a chef and author, her name is Alice Waters. Um, she wrote this book, We Are What We Eat, and the, the whole idea, is she's, she's a pioneer in the farm-to-table uh, movement, and if you don't know what farm-to-table is, uh, basically it's a restaurant or a way of living where, depending on the seasonality, that's the food that you prepare for meals, okay? So farm-to-table means whatever's available, you eat. And what she pushes up against in this book is the idea of fast food culture versus slow food culture. Now, fast food uh, culture goes, uh, is more than just midnight Taco Bell runs, which I love, but it's fixated on convenience, availability, and speed. You always have something available. The later it gets, probably the quality starts dropping off pretty significantly at a certain point, but it's always available if you want it. In and out of season. Slow food culture emphasizes biodiversity, stewardship, simplicity, and interconnectedness. And when we live in fast food culture, we can start to believe that it is always strawberry season. Now, in the middle of winter here in Minnesota, it is obviously not strawberry season. But you can go to your supermarket and buy strawberries. And it undermines your experience of strawberries when they're meant to be eaten when they're wonderful and they're beautiful and they're tasty and they're juicy. She says, 
When all year long you eat those same second-rate fruits and vegetables that have been flown in from the other side of the world or grown in industrial greenhouses, you can't actually see them for what they are when they come into season, when they're ripe and delicious. By that time, you're already bored. That's not just true for strawberries. It's true for a lot of things in our lives. We say it all the time in Minnesota. If it, if it was always really nice, we always say when it's spring or when it's days like today, we're like, man, if it was always like this, I think I could do that. It's not true. We'd get bored with it. We wouldn't appreciate it. Same thing with our favorite meals, maybe even our favorite toys or our favorite things that we, our favorite hobbies. And so if this idea is true, what if our desire for limitless potential is not all that it's cracked up to be? What if the limits created for us are good, not only good, but are intended for us to flourish in our relationship with God? We're going to open up our Bibles to Genesis 3. Um, so if you have Bibles, you can open them up to Genesis 3. It's right at the beginning of the Bible. Um, because we want to open up our Bibles, especially when it comes to limits. We don't want the idea of limits or uh, just the anxiety that limits bring. We don't want what God has to say about them to be a mystery to us. And we definitely don't want to have our place in God's story to be a mystery to us either. But before we get into Genesis 3, we're going to do what we've been doing in this series. We have some of our younger five oakers read the first verse on the first page of our Bibles. And these Five Oakers are the cutest at Five Oaks, okay? There's no competition. Go ahead and watch. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Told you. Um, right before this video, Navy, our oldest, those are my kids if you're not uh, here. Um, I'm biased. Uh, but Navy, our oldest daughter, punched Hank in the face right before that, so. But then they read the Bible, so everything's fine, right? Um, so we're going to be in Genesis 3, and oftentimes when we say Genesis 3, uh, that's usually a, um, a time where we recognize this is when everything went wrong. This is when everything changed, this is when sin entered the world, and that is all true. But I think we also have to come against our idea of what did it look like before sin entered the world? Because oftentimes when we think, oh, the Garden of Eden sounds so great, it must have been endless relaxation. It must have been so easy. We must have had, it must have been so peaceful and good, and partially that is true. But we can't miss the idea that Genesis 1 and 2, before sin entered the world, that the first humans were created to work. They were created to work, to tend the garden, to spread the garden. It wasn't just sitting around. They had a job to do. And they were also created to have a relationship with God that was unhindered by sin. And they were also have a relationship with others. They had submission to God and there were limits to their ability and their activity. It wasn't a free-for-all before sin. The garden was good. God said it was good, but it was not perfect. Biblical language of perfect means that it's completed, it is finished, and we know they were working it, they were tending the garden, they were spreading the garden. The garden was not finished, so it wasn't perfect, it was good. Limits were accepted, they were part of the deal, and usually when we think that 
pre-sin, that there was unlimited fun and relaxation points more to the fall than what actually was happening in the garden before the fall. So before we jump in, let's pray that the Holy Spirit can illuminate our hearts and our minds as we study God's word in Genesis 3. Let's pray. Dear Lord, um, just pray for our time together that you illuminate our hearts and our minds to hear your voice through your word. I pray as we talk about limits that we can see them as good, that we can um, grow in, in our practices of, of understanding and, and understanding and finding our limits good and depending on you, Lord. I pray um, as we hear today that any distractions that we're able to, to hear your word and to grow from it. We pray this all in your name. Amen. All right. So we're going to ask three questions about our limits this, this morning. Three questions that I think we all need to ask. And the first question is a basic, obvious one, but there, we still need to talk about it. Are limits bad? Okay? And the answer is no, they're not bad. But I think a lot of times we have to look at our world in a way, in the lens of limits, to really understand how good limits are and how much we depend on limits. Take the piano, for instance. My kids love to play the piano. In fact, they all three love to play the piano on the same piano at the same time, and usually it is slamming on the piano, and it's loud, and it's obnoxious. It's not music. Now, within the limits of musical theory... In practicing, learning notes, learning how to read music, maybe learning some rhythm and some touch, within the limits of that, they have the possibility to make beautiful music, music that maybe has never even be, been heard before. It's almost a limitless potential within limits. The same thing is in the game of chess. If you guys have ever played chess, um, I'm not good at it, and so if you're good at it, you can tell me all the things I said wrong later. But there's only a certain amount of moves that you can do with certain pieces on the board, right? And each one of those limits creates almost a limitless amount of games within limits. After the first move is made, there's over 400 possible games that can be played. After the second or third, there's over 197,000 games that can be played. Each move may be making a game that has never been played before. Some AI scientist tried to figure out how many games can be played, and he said it's, it's not even almost worth the effort to find out. There may be a limitless number of games that you can play. You can find chess boring, but not because it's a limited game. There's freedom within those limits. We need limits to make life worthwhile. But just because it's true in music and in games, we can still be tempted that there is some sort of limitless potential that we have for ourselves and for our future. And so as we jump into Genesis 3, chapter 1, we see the first question is fighting against limits from the serpent. This is what he says in verse 1. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And if you know your Bibles, this is not an innocent question, as we all know. Because what he's saying is, look, there are beautiful bushes and trees, and look at the fruit all over the place. It looks amazing, and you're not even allowed to eat any of it? And the question has a deeper meaning within that. He's asking them how they hear from God. Is God limiting you? Are there limits to your potential? Are you thriving under God? 
So he's attacking their potential. He's attacking how they hear from God. And so Eve responds, we may eat from the fruit, up from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. She says, yeah, we can eat some fruit, but we can't even touch, we can't eat or touch the one in the middle of the garden. And it's really important to see in Genesis 2.16 what God actually says. God says, when he's giving rules and limits on his creation, he says, you're free from, to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. If you put those two verses together, you realize there's a really important distinction. He says you're not allowed to eat from it. He did not say you are not allowed to touch it. Now, I'm assuming the best for Adam and Eve. They probably wanted to make sure they didn't even get near that. Who knows what her intentions were? I assume they're trying to be obedient to God in this moment. But what she did here is she added limits to God's divine limits. She's straying from God's word. She's adding law. She's adding more rules around what God says she's going to do. And she, she actually weakens the punishment, saying eating it and touching it will bring death, but only one of those is true. What she's doing is something that we've been doing since sin entered the world, and she's trying to control her environment. When we try to control our environment, it brings dependence on ourselves, not on God. When we try to control things, we think that there's some sort of limitless potential because we're in charge and that God is holding out on us, that, God, that we know best. But just like mashing keys on a keyboard or on a piano, all that does is create chaos. So are limits good? We, we need to look to Jesus to see that limits are good. So when we think of Jesus, um, it's a really complicated picture in our minds. He was fully God and fully man. So a lot of times the God part kind of takes over in our minds. And when we think of Jesus, we don't think of Jesus as limited. But it's important to think that he is limited in nature. Look at Hebrews 4 about what it means to take on limits. In verse 14, it says, Since therefore we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And this is the important verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we, we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Our limits, they bring frustration. They make us feel stuck. They make us feel powerless. But these verses are saying something extremely important. Jesus felt the same way. If you read Matthew 4, 1 through 11, you look at Jesus in the desert being tempted by Satan, tempted to go beyond his limits. And if he was tempted in the desert, that means that it was a temptation. Jesus was tempted like us, but he did not sin. And because of that, we can now draw to God 
with confidence. We can come to God with confidence. What limits do are they, what it does is it cultivates relationships. It cultivates relationship and dependence on the one who is limitless. When we can come to God in confidence in our limitations, it brings relationship and dependence on the one who is limitless. Our limitedness is not a sign of failure, but a call to draw near to Jesus. Limits are good because Jesus took on our limits. Now, just because I said Jesus took on our limits doesn't mean that there aren't frustrations when we have limits in our lives. They're still frustrating. We still need to know how to deal with them when we come up against them and not sin and not act out in anger or frustration or any of those other emotions. That's why we need to ask this next question. How do we see limits as good? Or how do I see limits as good? The other way of saying this is, how do I practice living in my God-given limits? Let's jump back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, Eve has already messed up the first test. Uh, She failed. She's already distorted God's word. She's adding limits to limits, and now the enemy seizes an opportunity Um, If they're going to mess up God's word in this area, the opportunity is open for them to mess it up in other areas as well. Look at verse 4. The serpent said, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now there is a sense here where the serpent was right. They're not going to die immediately. But what is going to die is their relationship with God unhindered by sin. Their relationship with each other unhindered by sin. And the fact that they are eventually going to die. Again, we need to look at uh, chapter 1, the first page of the Bible. We need to see what did God intend for us? Why was that such a... uh, why was that such a, like, something that they wanted to be like God in that way? Because God created us to be like God in another way that's really good. If you look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 28, we see that we were created to be like God by being his image bearers. And that's important. Image means that we were created distinct from all the other creatures, all the other plants, all the other creation. We were created in the image of God, which gives us special statuses. We are his representatives on earth. We are to rule over the earth. We are to be fruitful. We are to multiply. We are supposed to spread our image across the world, a world full of God's representatives. We steward resources. We harness them to benefit all other image bearers. That is a huge job. What else could we want or could we need? And so what the serpent did is he pushed on a a tension point here. Instead of having freedom with God as image bearers in the way we were created, we are now living in this restless questioning of his goodness. Is that all God has for us? And then we try to escape our limits. 
And we live in a day where it's not only easy to escape our limits, it's almost encouraged. Social media, for instance, I'm the youth guy, so I have to make sure I talk about social media. Um, although it's not always a bad thing, it is a, a place of nowhere. There is always an endless amount of content any hour of the day, any place on the planet. You can never get to the end of social media. But how we use this social media says everything about who we are and what we want to become and how we view limits. So I'm going to show you a couple of the pictures that I am proud of, okay? So the, if, if I were to share on social media, these are the things that I would share. So here's the first one. I caught this giant rainbow trout in Tennessee, and it looks like I'm not excited, but I'm really focusing on holding that fish. And so um, all my friends, they'd quit fishing, and I was the only one who was fishing, and so I caught it, and then I showed them the picture just to make sure that they were jealous. Um, and so I was really pumped about that. Next picture. Uh, the other night, my kids and I were hanging out. I think my wife was, um, I don't know where she was, but I was um, watching the kids, and I thought, oh, let's take pictures. You know, I got a camera that takes good night pictures. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. The kids thought it was cool, too. Um, and so the next picture, this is me water skiing on my birthday. I'm actually falling, but if I took the picture, I took the screenshot to make it look like I was really taking a hard cut. But if you really pay attention, uh, there's slack, like I'm pulling in, that's not a good sign. But um, I was excited. I don't get to go very often. I really love water skiing. And um, on my birthday at camp, uh, some of our boat drivers brought me out. And so I would have shared something like this without context so that people would think that I was really cool. Now, if we go to social media, um, there's nothing that can make you feel worse of things that you are proud of than social media because there's always a better picture, always a better experience, and always somebody who's doing something cooler than you, okay? So I put my picture against people that I saw on the internet and social media. So the first one is, look at that. He even looks happy. He's holding it better. It's a bigger fish. Um, they're not exactly the same species, but... Um, now I gotta catch that. I'm not happy with this one anymore. Next one. I don't even have to really say much. Like, that's so pathetic compared to that. Um, my kids probably will think this is cool still, but that's about it compared to that. Okay. And then the next one is look at this show off. <laughs> one hand, gloves. Uh, I didn't even need gloves. So, um, but he's obviously not falling. That's what it should look like, not just this pathetic little spray as you fall, fall over. Now, social media, if we're not careful, can make us long for a life that's not available to us. Instead of living in the, pre uh, the present, we end up living in an unsatisfied life, looking for more, angry at the limits that we have and all the things that other people have, the money, the, the tools, the experiences that we don't have and may never get. That's why we have to look to Jesus. And the truth is, is that Jesus took on our limits through his life, death, and resurrection. And he did that so that we can confidently come to God. That is the truth of the matter. But sometimes the truth isn't enough. We can know something, but it has no impact on how we live. Based on this truth and seeing Jesus take our limits, how can we practice it in a way that we can take the truth, find joy in that truth, and live differently? 
Look what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. This is one of my favorite verses. Jesus says to a people who are limited, frustrated, and looking for more, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The serpent is against this. What the serpent wants us to do is either to do more or escape. Do more as in, I'm going to do more Christian things. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to, I'm going to do these things because doing something feels better than not doing something. And some of you guys may live in that reality and you can nod your head and think, yes, I've tried. I've tried to read my Bible. I've tried to understand my Bible. I've come to church. I've tried small groups, but small groups are frustrating because there's people in it. And I'm exhausted. It's not working. Or we try to escape. We escape entirely from the pressures and the limits of our world. That could be in social media, but it could be something else that numbs our realities and our senses. Dallas Willard, he comments on uh, Matthew 11. Um, and he tries to cap recapture this vision of life with God. Beyond just knowing the truth and doing more to redirecting our practices. He says, in this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as Jesus lived in the entirety of his life. Adopting his overall lifestyle. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. It is a strategy that is bound to fail. He's pointing to the fact that we can oftentimes try to live the Christian life without actually knowing Jesus. That doing can feel good in the moment, but we actually don't know the person for why we are doing those things. Pastor and author John Mark Comer summarizes this point. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Now we have to ask a, an important question within that question is why don't we do that? Because when we talk about the easy yoke, we can say, yes, I want rest for my weary soul. I want a light and easy burden. I want an easy yoke. But we are unable to actually adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And we do this for a variety of reasons. One is that it requires something from us. And that's hard. And that there's a cost, social, financial. You might cost some of your comfort. It seems to add more limits to our already limited lives. If you look at the picture of a yoke on some oxen, that looks like a limit. But really, it's giving purpose to these animals. Without this limit, they would wander. They'd probably be in danger of predators. They would have no purpose for their lives. The yoke makes this life worth it. Comer goes on to say, but in Jesus' case, it is worth the cost. In fact, you get back far more than you give up. There's a cross, yes, a death, but it's followed by an empty tomb, a new portal to life. Because in the way of Jesus, death is always followed by a resurrection. 
Come to Jesus. Find that his yoke is not only good, but worth living in. Find rest for your souls. Yes, limits are good, but when you see limits of, as good, you're going to adopt Jesus' lifestyle. And so our last question that we have for this morning is how do I live the lifestyle of Jesus? Because if they're good, and we see that they're good because we can adopt Jesus' lifestyle, I think the question is, how do we live the lifestyle of Jesus? And thankfully, we don't have to do it alone. Let's finish our passage starting in verse 6 of chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from him from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The serpent had convinced them that God was not enough for them. Shame entered the world, and that shame included covering and hiding, and we have been doing it ever since. But the story of God that we are reading is the story of his pursuit for us, not in our power, not in our pushing the limits, but in Jesus taking on our limits. It's upside down for us. It's crazy to think about. And so as we can study Jesus' lifestyle, we can read the books, uh, the, the Gospels and the whole Bible and, and not f- end our search for the lifestyle of Jesus. But there's two important things that Jesus does that we can adopt today, this week, this month. And that is that he spent time in solitude and that he spent time in community. Uh, Pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together wrote about these two things, uh, solitude and community. He says, the day together and the day alone are both essential for spiritual success. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has a profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants Fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. So we see Jesus spends time in solitude. And it's not just a call for us to just escape all the time when things get hard. It was more of a posture of having the space and the time to listen to God's word through prayer, through his word and through the Holy Spirit. We can't hurry a relationship with Jesus just like we can't hurry a relationship with our friends, a deep relationship. That's why we need to spend time on a relationship with God. Now, I'm not gonna go into these verses here, but this is just a, an example of some of the times where Jesus went alone to be by himself. And again, he's not doing this to escape anything. He's doing this to work on his relationship with the Father, to hear from the Father, to, to be directed by the Father, to, to, to be able to have energy to speak to crowds, to heal people, to get power from the Spirit. We need time alone. Now, some of you guys might be like, wow, that's really cool. That's really great. You know, I have kids. I have a demanding job. 
I have school. I have fill in the blank. And that's all true. It's hard to find this time. And when we do find this time, it's easier to escape, right? Escape through social media, looking at our phone, or even just finishing up some work. But it's still worth the effort. It's still worth uh, adopting this lifestyle. And it may look different for each one of you. This is not a law. For some of you, it might be you need to wake up a little earlier before the kids start yelling about breakfast. Maybe it's during a nap time or a rest time in the afternoon where you just have a few moments to read God's word and hear from God. Maybe it's when the kids go to bed or after the work day, when the work is done, the kids are asleep and you just have some time to, to listen and to sit, to find God. Or maybe it's you're working with your spouse or your roommates and finding times and encouraging each other to go on a walk, a quiet walk, just to listen and hear God's word. These practices are going to bring freedom. They may feel like limits at a time, but when they become practices, they bring freedom. But he also spent time in community. And as difficult as people can be, they are one of the most essential limitations we must take on in our lives, one another. Eugene Peterson says, there can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion in an embrace of community. I am not myself by myself. So adopting the lifestyle of Jesus means, yes, we spend time knowing God more, hearing from God more, but it also means embracing the limits of community, which is the church. And I say the church because oftentimes, well, it is the most important place for community, but we oftentimes view our churches as an affinity group or something that we can choose based on whatever we're feeling for the week or for the year or for the month. I don't mean that to be, um, I don't want to say like this church is perfect, you need to commit, or that your small group is perfect and you need to commit until all of you are dead. That's not what I'm trying to say. But oftentimes we view our churches like a gas station. It's, and we use gas station language sometimes. We say, I just need to be filled up this week. And we have loyalty cards and, and you know, multiple, which means we're going from place to place and wherever we're going to get filled up best and wherever we're going to go to the next convenience store, whoever has the cheapest gas, we're just going to keep going to those to be filled up the best. People are dispensable in this view. You're going to be easily frustrated by a boring song or a boring sermon that definitely isn't this week, but definitely other weeks, right? <laughs> Or we're going to be offended anytime somebody, or we're going to push people away anytime we're offended by someone in the congregation. Instead, we need to view the church as an embassy. If you know what an embassy is, an embassy is a base for a country's dip diplomatic mission abroad. <clears throat> Embassies represent a country's interest in a foreign land. It could be enemy, it could be non-enemy territory, but that's what the church is. The church is an embassy. And I talk about this all the time with our students. We view the church in this way because um, we practice our kingdom living here and now with a group of people that we don't choose. If you're coming to church, you didn't choose who's sitting in here today. 
If we're gonna be living in God's kingdom in heaven forever, we may be with some of the people in this room, some people that you may really like, some people that you may not like as much, some people that are beneath you, or maybe some people that you think are way above you. We can't pick who's gonna be in the kingdom of God. We can't pick who is in our church. So that's why we start practicing loving one another despite our differences, despite our sin, despite anything that the world would say, you shouldn't be hanging out with that person. We practice living in God's kingdom now and today. And when we start doing that, our churches, our small groups, our impact opportunities are gonna start looking different to a watching world. It means we're gonna stop looking for the perfect community. Like I said, you don't have to, uh, like a, you, Five Oaks doesn't necessarily have to be that perfect place for you. Even the small group that you're in or that you're trying is not necessarily the small group that you have to stay in forever. But when you start being rooted in a small group, you start diving in people's lives, the things that may annoy you, that may make you want to push eject or that make you want to look for other things. They may do things that are not your favorite, but it's good for you to practice living in the kingdom. You'll share your lives with others because you're viewing community as community should be viewed. You're not seeing it as your God because God is your God. You're spending time with God alone, so you're not going to expect too much from your community. It's a place where you can share where you're hearing from God's word or not hearing from God's word. The struggles in your life, the things that are going well, the things that you hope for, the, th- the times when you come against your limits in sin and then you bear one another's burdens. You pray for each other. You serve with each other. You have fun together. You share your life together at the expense of your resources and your time when you can and then you make an impact in our world. The world's gonna see you're not just jumping in and out like a convenience store gas station. And it's gonna look different from how most people live their lives. We're gonna be a light to the world. And that can be an amazing thing. We're celebrating baptism this week. And baptism is not just a personal celebrating a personal relationship between somebody and God. What it's doing is we are all together celebrating that we, there is a new kingdom member and that we can invite them into the community, not expecting them to be perfect, but walking alongside them as they find how to live in God's story. But we're also inviting them to something else, and that's communion. This is something we share together. Every single week. This is where we look back and what Jesus has done for us and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the fact that we live in a place where we come into an embassy instead of the real thing. But we also look forward to living life with God forever. And so the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And we had, he had given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread 
and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Um, we have a song before baptisms, and this is an opportunity for you to respond in the way that the Spirit is working in your life. Maybe it's sitting down and listening to the words of the song and praying and trying to hear God's voice. We also have a praying station in the back. We have candle lighting stations up front, and the purpose of those is to look outside of ourselves and to pray for those who are far from God, and we pray that the light of Christ is lit in their lives as well. So use this time to hear from God. But let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for giving us limits. I pray that we see them as good, that we can start practicing them together in community, that we can spend time uh, getting to know you more through reading of your word, through the Holy Spirit, and through prayer. Speak to us this week. Give us opportunities to find uh, grace with each other and help us to remember that we can come to you in confidence because you know what we're going through. Pray this all in your name. Amen.